0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: In November, 2019, a J.D. Supra article titled, SEC Chief Enforcement Accountant cites the use of data analytics, self-disclosure, and cooperation as key factors in investigating accounting misconduct, summarized the enforcement landscape at the time as follows. Quote, Companies, accounting professionals, and audit firms should be aware that with more than 130 accountants actively involved in cases, the SEC's resolve to police financial statements, related disclosures, and audits is extremely high. This resolve, coupled with its advanced use of data analytics to identify potential accounting issues, could likely result in more investigations. Given the emphasis on self-disclosure and cooperation, companies must be proactive in assessing potential accounting issues internally and in their industry, and if a problem is identified, to determine with counsel if self-disclosure and cooperation are appropriate." End quote. Although the article came out three years ago this month, the focus and sentiment of the SEC has remained steadfast in the interim. Just this past April, the SEC touted its data analytics tools in bringing its fourth action and the highest penalty yet recorded related to its EPS initiative. And further to the article's point, self-disclosure and cooperation continue to be emphasized by remarks from commission staff and in the actions brought. Early in 2022, the SEC issued a press release titled, Remediation Helps Tech Company Avoid Penalties, in which the entity received no fine or penalty thanks to its, quote, internal investigation and revised valuation, end quote, as well as its repayment to harmed investors and improved corporate governance measures. All that is to say that the prophetic remarks provided from that SEC Chief Enforcement Accountant have held through to today. And thankfully, that SEC Chief Enforcement Accountant Matt Jakes is here to discuss the role of the enforcement accountant, a position he held from 2018 to 2022, as well as current topics in the legal and accounting world today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimov,
2: and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. You know, it's just a shame that the listeners don't get the video feed I have right now. If they could just see how genuinely excited you are. Hopefully the smile comes through in the sound, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Look, I'm excited too. I have to say, over what are we on episode eighty, Chris? I think that's where Eight we are. Eight zero, that's right. Eight zero. Wow! Congratulations, man. Hey, you um, too. Great but- job. <laughs> but over 80 episodes, I don't even know how many times we've said something like, accounting and disclosure cases always count among the largest buckets of that's SEC right. enforcement actions year after year after year. It's sort of where our interests intersect. Mm. And that's why I'm excited today, because we've got Matt on the show. He's the perfect person to talk about these issues and maybe give us, give us an idea of where he thinks things are going over at the SEC. So I'm excited. Can't wait to get started. Why don't we jump in with some bio? All right. As we said, our guest today is Matt Jakes, who is a Managing Director at Alex Partners. Matt returned to Alex Partners in March 2022 after spending three and a half years as the Chief Accountant in the SEC's Division of Enforcement. As Chief Accountant, Matt was responsible for leading the Enforcement Division's enforcement program related to financial accounting, disclosure, and audit enforcement matters. And as it happens, that was Matt's second tour at the SEC. Earlier in his career, Matt spent nearly six years in the SEC's Boston Regional Office as an accountant in the Enforcement Division. Matt has a unique combination of experience as a regulator, forensic accountant, auditor, and accounting expert. Matt is actually a CPA and a CFE, and he has been known to crack the odd joke during otherwise staid accounting panel discussions, all of which make him an ideal guest for the Insecurities podcast. Matt, I understand you're a longtime listener, first time caller, glad we could finally get you on the show. Welcome to Insecurities.
3: <laughs> that, that was quite an introduction. I appreciate it. And, and thanks, Kurt. And thanks, Chris, for, mm-hmm. for having me on the show today. I wanna confess up front, I'm not just a, a long time listener of insecurities, but I, I'm sort of a podcast junkie in general. And I was trying to figure out when did I start listening to podcasts? And I, I Googled around and, and got back to my first podcast, I'm pretty sure it was Bill Simmons podcast uh, back in 2007. Do, do either of you know who Bill Simmons is?
1: Of course, the the famed sports writer from the, the greater Boston area, I believe, man.
3: The, the, the Bill Simmons, the ESPN sports guy to start. Mm-hmm. And do you remember, he now calls it the BS Report <laughs> for his initials, Bill Simmons. Do you remember the the first, the name of his first podcast?
1: Was it the uh, the website was the Ringer? I don't know. Was that the same as the podcast, or did he have a different name?
3: Years ago, he used to call it the Eye of the Sports Guy, and and so this this is what I did. I, I've listened to your podcast, and I know you like to throw trivia at your guests that they can never <laughs> answer. <laughs> That's so right. So I decided to go to go on the offensive early. You right? hit hard. <laughs> to, to, you to came
2: out swinging. I have got
3: I've been listening to thousands of podcasts, you know, thousands of episodes probably over those 15 years, and I, who knows how many, but I have never appeared on one. Oh, this is so awesome. this is my first podcast, and, and i glad to be with you here today, guys. We're Thank
1: glad you. to be a stepping stone to your eventual appearance <laughs> on The BS Report, Matt, so this is great. Well, we want to start out, Matt, with a little bit more about you. I mean, the the role and and your position as the chief enforcement accountant thing job, right? Not all kids grow up wanting to be, you know, the, the the chief accountant of the division of enforcement. You know, we're in this kind of Halloween time when you were dressing up as a kid. Were you the in the policeman outfit but carrying an abacus or a calculator with you? What was the dream, and and how did you end up in that role? All right. Well,
3: to start, Chris, I, I come from a family of firefighters. Uh, ah, so okay. There was <laughs> my father's a firefighter. All his brothers, my cousins, family, friends. So there was never a dream of being a police officer. Understood. But, but yes, I was never far from a calculator. And I guess now I'm, I'm never really far from an Excel spreadsheet. But look, I think, you know, like many of us, I spent a lot of time in college figuring out what I what I enjoyed, what I had a passion for. And accounting really just clicked for me. I had started off as an engineer, then a math major. But when I I made it into my first accounting class, everything just kind of made sense. What really spoke to me was the organization aspect of accounting, taking economic events and organizing them into a language, that language of business or financial statements. And then after graduation, my career took me on a number of different twists and turns, starting with an an auditing career in the Boston office of Arthur Anderson in the late 90s. And as you probably guessed, that that ended abruptly in 2002. (laughs) And and from there, you know, I've been really lucky to intersect with a, a number of amazing people that have been mentors, colleagues and friends and leading up to the, the chief accountant. I was actually at Alex Partners and, and very happy at the firm and would have probably stayed there the rest of my career. I, I enjoyed the work as a forensic accountant, and expert witness, I love my partners and my clients. The enforcement chief accountant job was one of the very few opportunities, may, maybe the only one that I would have left the firm to pursue. And, I also had some benefit from one of my partners, Susan Markle, who had served us. So I had her perspectives as I was evaluating the opportunity. And, and so when the chief role became open, I threw my hat in the ring. And this may be a little too detailed, but I, I still remember the night I, I finally hit send on the application. I, I had spent the day, it was the day before the deadline and I had spent the day at Harry Potter World with my daughter. And I got home or back to the place we were staying down in Orlando. And uh, you know we, my wife and I decided, okay, let's let's do this. And so since then, she's joked that I may have had a little too much butterbeer <laughs> during the day at Harry Potter World leading to that decision. But look, I was lucky enough to get through the process. And, mm-hmm. and, and really there were two people at the end, the co-directors of, of enforcement at the time, Stephanie Avakian and Steve Peakin, who I, I had only met once briefly before the process. And they were ultimately the ones that took a chance on me and, and gave me the opportunity to, to return to the SEC in October,
2: 2018. So let's, I want to hear more about your time as the chief accountant, but first let's take a step step back, right? As I mentioned, you spent a few years in the Boston regional office on the staff. I, I won't date you, but you were there during a few very interesting years that, that included the Great Recession. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience, you know, in that first stint on the
3: staff? I'm happy to, correct. So so you're right. I first served at the SEC as an enforcement accountant, a staff accountant in the Boston regional office, and I started there in 2007. So as you noted right before the financial crisis, and that went through 2013. You know, look, that was and will forever be the best job I ever had. If you love solving difficult problems, working in a collegial environment, doing government service, that staff accounting job at the SEC, particularly in enforcement for someone like me, there's really no better job. I was an accountant coming from a large public accounting firm with lots of rules and process. And then I enter this relatively decentralized system. Now look, government gets a a bit of a stereotype of being a bureaucracy. Of course, there's some of that, but the enforcement division at the SEC is a a fairly flat organization. And and the beauty of the place is the mission is pretty simple. Investigate potential violations of the securities laws to protect investors. Now, the execution of that mission is incredibly complicated. And, And for most cases, particularly when you're a staff, It's you and a staff attorney doing the vast majority of the work, reviewing the filings, sending out subpoenas. And yes, even staff accountants can sign subpoenas, which I was ecstatic to learn when they explained it to me, Uh, taking the testimony of people, analyzing the facts to determine if a violation occurred, presenting the case to the commission. And you've got multiple cases across a a wide array of topics. It was hard work, but the people were amazing and, and the work was incredibly rewarding. And and because, as you noted, of of the housing crisis and financial downturn, I I had a, a pretty unique experience because I got to work on not just auditing and accounting cases, but all types of matters, including Ponzi schemes, other offering frauds, market manipulations, insider trading cases. And in a regional office like Boston, because of resource constraints from time to time, there's a bit of an all hands on deck approach. So if you've got the capacity and the willingness, people are... You know, excited and, and interested in involving you in things that might be outside your core you know, sort of power alleys. The staff inter- attorneys in Boston too are wonderful. They were wonderful to me. I think they realized long before I arrived that an accountant is a good teammate to have on any investigation. So from the start, they were more than willing to let me take on non-traditional accounting roles like drafting certain, certain documents or, or maybe taking more of a leading role in a testimony. Again, a lot of work, but also a really a really rewarding time in my career.
1: Kurt, I'm going to get you a bumper sticker that says an accountant is a good teammate to have on any investigation,
2: just so you, yeah.
1: you can remember
2: how, I, how well we, we can I, I perform I knew as soon ex- as he said areas. it, you know, when we're talking about this in our post-production <laughs> meeting, you're going to be like, I have the pull quote for this episode. Like, you're like,
1: <laughs> That's right. What, what t-shirt size are you, Matt? Because we'll get a t-shirt printed with that on it. That's great. <laughs>
2: All right, so as I, as I mentioned, Matt, we do want to talk a little bit about the role of the chief accountant. There are, as I understand it, a few chief accountants at the SEC. Uh, among them are the chief accountant for the entire SEC, Wes Bricker, who was on episode 43 of the podcast, previously held that position. But there are also chief accountants for certain of the divisions or offices, maybe, within the commission. Can, can you help us out? Who's who and who's doing what over there?
3: Yeah, no, it, it, it's a great, a great question, Kurt. And, and yes, that's correct. There are four chief accountants at the SEC, which, which can be confusing more than once. I would, I would get a call not intended for the enforcement chief accountant, and I would politely reroute while explaining the complexities of naming something <laughs> the same thing in four different ways. So there's the office of the chief accountant. You, you mentioned Wes, who, I, who I worked with when I was there, and currently now that's that's chief accountant Paul Munter, investment management, who is Jensen Wayne, corporation finance, which is uh, Lindsay McCoy court is in that role. And then the enforcement division, who, who recently filled by, by Ryan Wolf. I, I mean, look, we all get the same gold calculators when we start, but <laughs> each has a, a different role supporting their division office and, and the larger commission as a whole.
1: So for the, the, the elements of focus that the chief accountant for the division of enforcement has, how does that break down? What are the areas you know, that, that you were responsible for? So
3: this is a good question. And I think to to answer it properly, Chris, I want to maybe start with a little context. So Mm -hmm. if you think about the agency as a whole, let's say it's approximately 4,500 professionals agency-wide, and that that includes the 11 regional offices. Within that 4,500, there's 1,400 enforcement professionals. So that's attorneys, accountants, specialists, and others. And within that 1400 i think we said 130 at the top let's let's call it 140 there's always some debate as to who falls within the accounting group but there's 140 enforcement accountants within the enforcement division structure now 140 accountants and i'd be remiss without saying one attorney position and that attorney position has been and is currently occupied by charles wright who is the senior chief counsel to the enforcement chief accountant. Many people know Charles, and I think people would universally agree that his historical knowledge of the office, technical knowledge of the law and accounting, and his judgment make him one of the, if not the most important person in the office. And, and so the enforcement division and how those 140 accountants serve within division it's fairly complicated because of the regional structures and some of the differences so i won't go into all the details but sort of zooming back out to your question you know what is the chief accountant re- responsible for you know I, i'll bucket it into a, a couple areas i'll start with people so obviously the the most important part of working with others in the division to hire train and support the enforcement accountants it's a critical function mm-hmm. And because it's a really flat structure, as I mentioned, the, the vast majority of those 140 enforcement accountants are actively involved in investigations or litigations on the front line. Even some of the supervisors, they have their own case docket, they are working cases at, at the ground level. So getting them what they need to be successful through, through training, information, and other resources, thats I viewed that as a really critical part of the role, if not the most critical. It, the, the next bucket I'd look at is investigations and litigation. So, sort of the actual job itself, or or from the chief accountant's perspective, how do you support the division's efforts to investigate and litigate matters with with a major focus on accounting, auditing, and disclosure matters, financial reporting type matters? So, So the first thing you realize in any senior role in the division is that you will never open or file a case by yourself. You may have inputs into the various aspects, but every case is really owned by an attorney, accountant, investigative team. They, they do all the hard work I mentioned earlier, you know, generating the record, interfacing with counsel, drafting and proposing recommendations, negotiating settlements, potentially litigating. And, and they're, they're the ones that sit up there in front of the commission to present their, their case if it ultimately gets to the point of a recommendation. And, and once you appreciate the efforts of the investigative teams, you ask yourself, how do I make sure I don't get in the way And how do I make sure I'm additive to that process? And and for me, that boiled down to a couple things, pretty basic stuff, consultations, be available and be proactive in providing technical accounting or auditing advice to the investigative teams. Plumbing, which is something, or how I refer to it, which is really just improving the flow of information, removing obstacles, maybe identifying technologies that will help those teams get to information faster, and then coordinating across similar cases. And so this seems simple, but it can be a huge help to teams. And it's, it's more complicated than it sounds. But just being aware of the whole docket. So let's say at any time there's two to 300 financial related enforcement matters in the pipeline. If I have someone come to me with a fact pattern, perhaps I can connect them with another team that has a similar or same fact pattern, or maybe reroute them to a division or expert within the agency to save them some time. Really about eliminating obstacles, making our, our teams more efficient. So sort of stepping back to the big picture, you got people, the actual job itself, the investigations, litigation. And then the last big piece I put on there, I, I, I'd couple these two, which is case generation and strategic priorities. And, and these two are strongly intertwined because your priorities drive what you investigate. And, and while there's always some conscious effort to steer towards a particular topic area, you're also having to deal with what's in front of you. For example, COVID happened and the enforcement division reacted quickly to stand up a task force, to respond to offering frauds and related schemes that involve COVID. So, so while we had broader a broader priority and focus areas, sometimes macro events dictate where you go in a way you could never predict.
2: You know, I have to wonder, the first time you joined the commission, the Great Recession hit and the second time it was COVID. So please don't ever go back. Matt, just yeah, don't for, for all
1: our sakes. Just take a take a break from that for forever.
3: So, so what? So what you may not remember is I forget. It must have been January twenty nineteen. I might have the year off here. I had started, and we had the government shutdown, and so yeah. I was one of the people who was working through that. And I remember saying during that month. Well, it can't get any <laughs> crazier right, than this. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. Having to <laughs> operate <laughs> through it a government shutdown. Now. I mean, what could I mean all of us sort of the the, the, the senior officers and
1: dividends are starting to well, what what could possibly be more challenging than this? And there it was. <laughs> Lord, yeah. Next time you have too many butter beers, Matt, yeah. you just maybe take a second <laughs> thought about joining the commission
2: again. <laughs> anyway, all right. So a couple minutes ago you mentioned that, that Ryan Wolf is now in your old seat. And I should note for the record, Ryan Wolf is no relation to yours truly, though he does spell his name correctly, W-O-L-F-E. And I'm actually wondering, as I sit here, if Chris actually asked the wrong guy to co-host this podcast. Oh, that, yeah, it was the same email, it just went to the wrong inbox, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, so, so Ryan is now in the hot seat over at the SEC. He was previously in the office of the chief accountant, and so I guess I'm wondering, you know, how how will that inform his his new job? What do you think he brings to to your old role?
3: Yes, that's right, Kurt. Ryan ha- has joined the commission to serve in the in the enforcement chief accountant role. And, and and Ryan, look, he's someone I have the utmost respect for as a practitioner in person. He was previously at the SEC, as you mentioned, in the Office of the Chief Accountant or OCA from, I think, like 2010 or 2011 to 2020. And in OCA, he had interesting roles in that he worked both first as the liaison to enforcement, so interfacing with the enforcement division, and then later in the professional practice group. And that experience, in my opinion, is what makes Ryan a really unique and potentially very special fit for the role. I developed over time a strong relationship with the Office of the Chief Accountant, OCA, the, the technical shop within the agency, as I think you've referred to it as, during my, my time. But that took time. That that took a lot of effort and time to build those relationships and understand how they worked and appreciate their mission. Look, we have the same general mission, but each office and division has a a little twist. And look, there were three different OCA chief accountants while I was there. We had Wes Bricker, call back to an earlier episode, uh, Sagar Tiatia, and and then Paul Munter. So that's three different relationships you have to build and understand. Ryan walks in with a full understanding of how OCA, the technical side of the Office of Chief Account, and the Enforcement Division works. So his ramp time is essentially zero. That's just such a huge edge. So from day one, he's going to have nearly full interlock, I'm guessing, with OCA. And that, that's really one of the most important aspects of the role, that relationship and working together there. And... and Moreover, you know, look, Ryan's a real student of accounting and, and the accounting auditing industry. I, I've had some incredibly nerdy or I guess on on this show, we say wonky some incredibly wonky That's discussions right. with him about the role of the auditor, the different accounting standards, the SEC and the PCAOB, where they fit in the regulatory structure, how those overlap. And, and so I think his appreciation for the, the history and his, his dedication to doing the right thing, it's going to be a great combination for the agency and investors. Uh, in a broader point, and I think now of of past and present Chief Accountants in the Enforcement Division, starting with Charlie Niemeyer, you know my current partner who I mentioned, Susan Markle, Howard Sheck, who I know has been on the show, Mike mm-hmm. Maloney. you know look, every one of them inherited a different program in a different time. And I spent a lot of time you know understanding what each of them had done to build and advance the program. And I think Ryan in his appreciation of history, I, I think he's gonna look at all that and, and hopefully and I expect continue to build, you know, to the program to even higher levels
1: than where it had been.
3: So I'm I'm excited for him.
1: Well, Kurt, as you know, we often like to compare and contrast between commissioners, uh, chair people, and how they view enforcement, our favorite division, as well as the other activities of the SEC. So Matt, same question to you. You spent time in both uh, the commission under uh, Chairman Clayton and in the most recent iteration under Chairman Gensler. How do you see differences between them and, and how is their enforcement posture impactful for you from an accounting perspective?
3: So I get this question a lot. And it often feels, I know it's not intentional, it often feels a little loaded, because when you compare and contrast, you inevitably start to show some bias, right? So I had the pleasure of working under Chairman Clayton and with directors of Akin and Pekin. And then I got to spend time working under Chair Gensler with Director Gavir Graywall and Deputy Director Sanjay Wadwa, as well as others. All incredibly successful. These people are successful to outlier levels in their careers. I haven't spent a lot of time yet thinking about the broader agency differences, the rule writing agenda, public statements. Now, obviously there's a lot of press around the rule writing in particular under the Gensler SEC. Uh, So I'll take your question down to the enforcement division level. And if you go back and look at the numbers, I think you'd see that directors of Aikian and Pekin had an unbelievably active time with a large number of cases, record dollar amounts returned to investors across a wide array of areas and all with you know, sort of limited resources, and as we just spoke about, a pandemic. Now, we've also heard some early indications coming out from a recent speech, and by the time this podcast drops, you know, maybe enforcement numbers will we'll be out in more detail. But I think we know that the, the past fiscal year had a lot of activity as well, under Director Graywall and, and Deputy Director Wadwa, with a significant focus on certain large penalty cases. So thinking about this, and I think about this a lot, What I caution in the analysis of comparing administration's enforcement programs at the SEC is this. The slate doesn't start clean when a new chair comes in or a new enforcement director takes over. It often takes two, three, four, five years from opening a matter to bringing in action. I want to say the average time from opening to action is a little over 20 months with certain categories of cases like financial reporting being closer to 30 months and FCPA even taking longer than that. So every enforcement leadership team is reliant on the previous team to have a strong pipeline stocked. So if your predecessor doesn't leave you anything in the pipe to investigate or any ongoing investigations, it it can take years to replenish. So not until those later years of an enforcement leadership team do do you see the full results of how their strategy played out. And sometimes not even until after they are gone. If, If I might use a sports analogy, it's like a college sports team. The new coach inherits the old players and it takes the program four four full years probably of graduating those players out for the new coach to recruit in their type of player and work them through the system to field a full team of, of what that coach envisions and, and that's sort of the life cycle of, of cases in the enforcement division very very similar now much like a sports team i'm always cheering for the division and, and my former colleagues on the staff to execute on their mission even when we might occasionally occasionally disagree on a certain topic or two <laughs> So as a fan, I'm fascinated and I'm going to be watching the history of the SEC enforcement actions and, and how that history plays out. We actually keep a, a pretty useful database at our firm of, to track that activity. And, and I'm going to be really interested to see how next year, the year after, and the next you know, year after that goes.
1: All right, Kurt, I know that you, and maybe I, have been spending a lot of time this summer studying up with our Accounting Summer School series here on Insecurities. You know, as as a video game child, I'd like to think maybe Matt Jakes here represents the final boss on the last level of our Accounting Summer School here. So let's get into some of the details on on a couple of topics that, Kurt, you and I discussed this summer, but Matt, obviously, you know very well. Materiality,
2: revenue recognition, and the role of gatekeepers. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at how we've divvied these up, Chris, and I feel like this is my final exam, because I'm you know, supposed to speak to some of these topics, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can. A, yeah. Open book. It's <laughs> open right. book. So let's start <laughs> with, with materiality. We've talked about it a bunch on the podcast, and not just during the accounting summer school. But for purposes of today's conversation, just to orient all of our listeners, I'm going to throw out a sort of basic working definition of, of materiality. So from the SEC's perspective, materiality concerns the significance of an item to users of a registrant's financial statements, which makes absolutely no sense. So in plain English, information is material if it would be important to a reasonable investor. And this concept of a reasonable investor is critically important for companies along with their lawyers and accountants when they're trying to ascertain whether something is in fact material and should therefore be disclosed to the markets. But here's the rub, or at least from my perspective, a a squishy or maybe I should say principles based um, standard like. Would the information be material when gauged through the eyes of a reasonable investor uh, arguably requires registrants or public companies to apply a sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder standard. So, Matt, I would love to get your take on how should we think about materiality? What does it mean if you don't like my definition? And where do you think the commission or the staff might be going with materiality if it's a different direction at all?
3: So, uh, full disclosure, I'm completely distracted by Chris's final boss video game analogy. I'm,
1: I'm, well, we'll I'm, add some music, you know, some of that 8-bit music from the early 90s for you.
3: I'm, I'm wondering if I, if you guys think of me as like a Bowser from Super Mario or more <laughs> of right. like a... I hope I'm, i fall fallen more like the Ganon from yeah. Zelda. But, but yeah. let's let's we can, that's, Great we can probably talk about that The off, wonkiest off line. of
1: references. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so so look, it, Kurt, materiality. I, I think you know it, it could probably be its own episode. And and for me, since Chief Accountant Paul Munter's statement in March, and, and now with the the rule on compensation recovery, there, there's obviously been a huge focus on materiality, specifically. And I, I think this is where a lot of the coverage has fallen on the discussion of big R versus little R restatements. And, and I know the statement, the OCA statement on materiality, cited some statistics around one type of big R restatement being more prevalent or less prevalent over time. You know, I think that can be informative. I think the root cause of that analysis is, is probably a little more complicated. And, and, and while we don't have time to get into everything that's been written or said, and we probably shouldn't because it's already been covered with regard to materiality, I, I do want to take some time to to talk about some observations. I, I, I'm. I'm taking away from the staff statements on materiality and you know, sort of anecdotally what I'm hearing in, in my interactions or at least my clients' interactions. You know, First, and I think this is the most important one is, Paul and the OCA team didn't write this materiality statement because they were bored, right? They are probably busier than they've ever been with the rule writing activity in the marketplace and, and the big questions they're facing around certain new asset types. And, and so second, why did they write this? Well, you know, a number of the new rules that are proposed or coming out have a materiality element, so perhaps the staff saw this as helpful as clarifying some of their views. However, I thought the statement was pretty clear that that they're seeing enough, OCA, the staff, maybe Corporation Finance, are seeing enough through their consultations and evidence in the market that give them concern, or at least they felt needed clarification. So, so getting to the nuts and bolts of the statement, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing. I'm gonna pick out maybe a, a couple things that, that struck me as, as more interesting and, and away from just sort of the, the big R, little R debate. You know, the statement's pretty clear, right? A materiality analysis requires an assessment of both quantitative and qualitative factors. It's not a mechanical exercise, it's not a checklist exercise, and it, and it requires a thorough and objective evaluation of the facts and circumstances. As you mentioned, Kurt, the total mix of information. And while I've got the floor, one little note I'd like to make. People often talk about materiality like uh, two separate things. Hey, there's quantitative materiality and qualitative materiality. Like they're two separate analyses. For example, someone will say, well, that's quantitatively immaterial because it's below this threshold. Full stop. Now let's look at the qualitative materiality. And what I think that loses in the materiality analysis as outlined in SAB 99 is that materiality, it should be comprised of, of two, two buckets of factors. So there's quantitative and qualitative factors, not, not two bifurcated analyses. One analysis that includes both those factors. You know, Personally, I think, and I've, I've seen a lot of these during my time, particularly as a regulator, I, I think a materiality analysis loses some depth when you cabin those two areas. The best analyses I've seen recognize that the qualitative and quantitative factors need to be combined in that total mix regardless of which side of the argument you're on it really helps the analysis and i think that statement by oca and paul munter it reaffirms the sliding scale or focus on weighting the factors as opposed to the two separate analyses and i'm going to quote it it says we believe however that as the quantitative magnitude of the error increases it becomes increasingly difficult for qualitative factors to overcome the quantitative significance of the error And i think that statement within there you can pull it out really gets to the core of this which is as that error gets bigger quantitatively that magnitude increases you you, you're burdened by having to have more qualitative factors to determine it's not material and if there's anything i took away from from the statement it it was that that focus there yeah there's the top level discussions around the, the big r little r but, but to the nuts and bolts of people preparing SAB-99 analyses or thinking about materiality, that was something that, that really struck me. Followed by, they went on to say, the OCA staff expressed, and I, I'm just paraphrasing now, I mean, essentially we are skeptical of a lot of the qualitative factors we're seeing, or, or when we see people overly relying on qualitative factors in their materiality analysis. And they went on to use an example from Sab 99 And remember, Sab 99 is written from the context of a a small error potentially being material because of qualitative factors. They said, look, there's a bunch of qualitative factors we give you in there, but that doesn't mean you can use the reverse and say, hey, it's a big number, but because management wasn't intending to be fraudulent, it's it's not material. In fact, they said the reverse isn't applicable. So I I thought those were two of the key things I took away, a refreshing of the bigger the error, it's a sliding scale, it's factors, and then also, this idea that you can't just use that checklist and, and flip it
1: to, to reach your conclusion. And, you know, for our listeners, Matt, materiality sounds like it's not the leading charge or the leading identification of an issue in, in financial statement fraud or, or any other allegation. You know, I can't imagine the SEC's out there, you know, tracing month by month or quarter by quarter results and saying, oh, this ticked up by a, what we claim is a quantitatively material amount. Or you've rounded something inappropriately here. Is it true that materiality is more of a, a, a cart before the horse idea of reviewing these, these cases and seeing where materiality plays in?
3: Yeah. <clears throat> Look i think you're right chris with your general state you know statement there that the well the sec is certainly analyzing financial statements of course and we, course. And we can talk about some of the enforcement initiatives in that space I, i'm not aware of an effort to, to find materiality footfalls or you know sort of play gotcha there now outside of enforcement i think we're hearing right that corporation finance and the office of the chief accountant are, are certainly more attuned to companies choices around the restatement process and their judgments around materiality but but i i don't think it's to focus on rounding errors
2: Okay, so let's turn away from materiality for for a minute. Uh, You're right, it could be a whole episode, but but today we're going to try to hit a bunch of big topics. So let's talk a little bit about revenue recognition. Revenue recognition generally means that a company's uh, revenues are recognized when the service or product is considered delivered to the customer, not when the cash is received. That's the most basic formulation. Chris, however, tells me that there are five steps that a company should follow uh, when it's thinking about, about re- revenue recognition. So I'm going to walk through them quickly. All right, so step number one, the company should identify a, an existing contract with a customer. Second step, they should identify performance obligations under the contract. Third, they should determine a transaction price. Fourth, they allocate the trans transaction price to the performance obligations in the contract. And fifth, they recognize allocated revenue when performance obligations are met. So I understand that FASB recently moved to streamline the revenue recognition process across different types of businesses or industries, and, and that maybe these five steps are already pretty streamlined. But Matt, in the current landscape, Tell us, what do you think are some of the, the issues relating to revenue recognition and where might companies be getting this wrong?
3: Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, no. Look, one, I, uh, thank you for reading through the five, <laughs> the five steps. I feel like you, you lost a bet to Chris. Clearly, that yeah. <laughs> right.
1: We flipped a coin and uh, it was heads on both sides. So when it comes to revenue recognition,
3: obviously, one of the statistically most charged areas of financial reporting violations, we'll say, historically by the SEC. One of the the themes I've always picked up on there, and and this is maybe less as a regulator, although certainly I've I've observed it there, is is REVREC revenue recognition comes down to, again, plumbing, and usually plumbing within organizations. So it's rare in my my experience that the finance or the accounting department has all the facts and makes the wrong REVREC call. Or if that's the case, it's typically a, a good faith judgment, and, and you're in a maybe a highly judgmental area or something that you know relies on projections or or some type of historical analysis that they're not able to do completely. What what the real breakdown is, is when information doesn't flow to that finance and accounting function. So again, the plumbing. Maybe someone on the operations team knows something about a deal that would inform the RevRec and the systems aren't in place to get that information maybe someone in the sales doesn't appreciate that a promise they made to give a discount on a future purchase by a customer is going to implicate the revenue recognition. And so when, when people ask about the breakdowns, I, I off, we often find it there. And, and that's my experience and where my observations have been. You know, One interesting thing about revenue recognition is I, I, I took the chief accountant role in October 2018. So we were kind of coming through ASC 606. And so that's the new revenue recognition standard. So there was 605 and then the transition to 606. And one of the questions I got a lot was, hey, is this fact pattern, is it gonna be violative of 605, but not violative of 606 and vice versa? And I thought that was a good question. I know it's one that I can't say this with 100% certainty. We, d- we certainly didn't do an academic study on this. But when we spent time looking at it, we, we generally found, in the vast majority of cases, with very few, and if you sort of have a Venn diagram, that didn't that didn't meet this, which was most enforcement enforcement cases, they're going to violate 605 and 606 because the, the core issues are, are usually so so sort of prominent that it, we're not getting into some of the nuances between the two. And so thinking about that, one thing I often wondered when I was serving in my most recent role was whether or not that transition to ASC 606 would drive down the instances of uh, accounting issues or violations or fraud in the revenue recognition area. And, And why? Well, because the sheer amount of attention revenue recognition was getting from auditors, regulators, preparers and consultants helping with that transition. Now, all those eyes on it, I, I was wondering at the time, is, is this gonna create you know, sort of a, a better environment to get to the right answer? And now, as we move further and further away from that transition period, are we gonna see more cases in this space or more issues, potentially restatements in this space? And, and what will that trend line look like? Uh, look, we've seen a number of matters recently, and, and there were certainly matters in revenue recognition, again, one of the, one of the sort of the, the bigger areas of focus when I was in the, the Chief Accountant, but remember, there's there's a lag on when cases are brought, so I'm really focused to see how the next uh, two to four years look uh, with the regulatory enforcement and just more generally restatements and and revisions during that time for financial preparers and, and reporting companies.
1: Yeah, I think too, Matt, and, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, Curtis. That the the ship has now sailed, right? They'll will no longer be the allowance for you know transition issues with 606. We've been at this for. I think the original discussion was in the mid 2000s, right? About revenue recognition changes. So there's not gonna be any, oh, I didn't know as as there may have been maybe five or 10 years ago. No, I think that's right, Chris. Kurt, you know, on this on this podcast, I always, you know, take a deep breath when someone from the commission mentions gatekeepers, <laughs> and it is not just related to my one of my favorite movies, uh, Ghostbusters, featuring Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis as those interdimensional gatekeepers. It usually refers to the role of auditors and advisors, and that has been a repeat topic for speakers from the commission in recent years. Auditor independence has been top of mind for you, Matt, and I love a comment that you gave a couple years ago regarding accounting and auditing firms explaining their independence. And I'll, I'll read your quote here. Quote: Creativity is generally encouraged in life. Accounting and auditing are often not the best places for creative thinking. And auditor independence is certainly not a place to creatively apply the rules or push the limits of the rules. End quote. Matt, share with us your take on auditor independence in light of the sea change currently being debated, especially with some of the large firms considering dividing up their, their audit functions from their tax and consulting practices.
3: So you guys are you guys keep hitting me with some really big topic areas <laughs> <Is> that <laughs> That's right. I'm sure we could. This was this fi- one. It's we final might boss to... stuff, Matt. We might be able to break this one off into a series of episodes if, if we really wanted to. And I'm actually most impressed you kept notes of one of my panels. And look, this is just another one of the areas that the staff had put out statements on starting with the June 2020 Paul Munter statement and then followed by a statement on alternative practice structures in August. And in all the panels and public events that I did in the chief accountant role, auditor independence probably made it into every single one. And that's because of its importance. The independent auditor, it's its the foundational piece of our financial reporting regime and, and really our financial regulatory system in, in a number of ways. To your question about what some of the transactions we have read about might mean for independence, that question is is top of mind for regulators. I, I think we can confirm that with the August Alternative Practice structure statement. But you know who else it's top of mind for? The auditors. And, and I know from personal experience, having been an auditor, working with audit firms in various capacities now, nobody wants to get audit independence right more than the audit partner signing an audit opinion. So look, it's going to be interesting to see how the industry reorganizes itself, if it does at all, and what impact that might have on these independence questions. But look, I take a lot of comfort knowing that it is getting attention inside and outside those audit firms.
2: All right, we've got one more hot topic for you, Matt. Actually, Chris, we talked about this on the last episode of the podcast. And it relates to a speech by Acting Chief Munter that has to do with the auditors' role in detecting fraud. So look, I think the the big takeaway, at least for me, was that in some cases there there's more that auditors could do or should be doing in their roles to detect fraud. And so I guess, Matt, I wonder, you know, do you, do you agree with that? Do you agree with what, you know, acting chief Munter said? Do you think maybe there are some, some changes on the horizon for the accounting standards? What's your view?
3: So look, I thought your podcast, I think it was, it was was a wheel of fortune one. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. Did, did did a really nice job hitting on the key points there. You know, one note I'd make is that a statement like this is is really hard to put out. The one you referenced that also came from the Office of the Chief Accountant on the auditor's responsibility for detecting fraud. Because in the statement, you're basically commenting on an audit standard that exists and which a lot of the statements do, but to, to, a, to a really high degree, I, I think, in this case. And in this case, we're talking primarily about the, the PCAOB AS2401 consideration of fraud in a financial statement audit, as well as some other related auditing standards. So in doing that, you can't stray too far from the existing rules to make your point without potentially confusing the auditor's responsibilities. And look, I, I, I wanna spend some more time, I have this like queue, as you've probably picked up of research areas I, I wanna get involved in at some point. But I was wondering how many enforcement matters against auditors historically involved charging the auditor with the failure to properly consider fraud in the financial statements. I I really want to figure out sort of the the baseline of what that's been historically. I'm not sure if there's ever been a case where that was the sole charge. I would guess not, but I want to go back and research that. And then I want to look at this trend line over time. Are we going to start to see an increase there now that this marker has been put down?
1: Now, uh, we mentioned Acting Chief Muntner, you know, he seems to be pretty busy or busy enough, at least, to maybe be considered as the full chief at OCA. You know, he provides uh, speeches and remarks almost monthly and not avoiding, uh, you know, difficult topics. We've heard about materiality. We've heard about the big R and little r restatements, Matt, that you referenced a little bit earlier. Uh, as well as a bunch of other uh, items that all of you can find on sec.gov from their their speeches uh, area. But we'd love to hear, Matt, you know, your experience with OCA, you know, obviously works both from a staff perspective and as the chief enforcement accountant. Uh, And we've heard, and and Kurt, you've noted this too, that a lot of non-enforcement folks at the commission are now using enforcement themes and, and the word enforcement in their remarks. Matt, anything that you can glean from kind of the state of the commission and where we might be going?
3: So you're right, Chief Accountant Munter OCA have been busy, and Chief Accountant McCord in Corporation Finance, Chief Accountant Wayne in Investment Management, and I'm pretty sure Chief Accountant Wolf in Enforcement have also been really busy. We can tell that from the the public-facing work they're doing, but a significant amount, the vast majority of the job, is is non-public-facing. It's a busy time at the Commission. There's a lot going on, as has been well documented. Two big thoughts on the the recent statements and this kind of became the, the Matt Jakes talks about Paul Munter's recent statements episode to some degree. But two big thoughts about those statements. One, they all have, as you noted, Chris, an enforcement theme with them. These are topic areas that are central to the financial reporting regime, but also to focus areas of enforcement. Materiality, auditor independence, and of course, the auditor's role in fraud detection. I was particularly struck by the alternative practice structure statement that read, and I'm going to quote If post transaction accounting firms are unable to comply with these requirements, enforcement investigations and proceedings by the Commission, the PCAOB, or both may result. I mean, that's a sentence in a statement about alternative practice structures, which is, again, a, a fairly wonky area if you go into the AICPA rules. Two, you know, one through line I saw was that the statement seemed to be calling for accountants and auditors to, and this is, these are my words, but go beyond the checklist. Look, I think checklists and lists are incredibly, incredibly powerful tools. I, I like to organize my day around lists. But these statements stress that the analysis cannot end there. The practitioner the auditor needs to, to step back and, and take that extra look at what's going on. Now, how many extra steps and where does that end? That's the challenge in some of these complex areas. And these aren't just complex, but highly judgmental areas. And I think where that line is drawn by the SEC and those enforcing these rules, it's going to be really important for practitioners and others to watch going forward.
1: Well, Matt, we've covered almost every topic under the accounting sun today and and definitely left a few more, uh, maybe some episodes for next year's accounting summer school. We'd love to have you back for it.
3: No, th- thank you guys. As I said at the top, really big fan of the show, really big fan of what you're doing out there in, in this space. And my, fir- my first podcast, I-, I-, I hope it went, well. I guess I'll know if I get invited to your your New Year's
1: episode or, or whatever you did last year. That's right. The, the, <laughs> the, new, the remote New Year's party. Excellent. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Matt Jakes of Alex Partners. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me and at underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time.
2: Thanks for tuning in.
0: Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.